Hello, I'm Matt, and this is Ghostthropology. The show will feature ghost folklore, which includes both well-known stories and small personal encounters, all ultimately unverifiable, but all presented by people as true. I will tell you the story, after which I will discuss the elements of the story that I think are particularly interesting. While I don't know when, where, or how you were listening to this, I hope it's dark outside, as that is the best time for ghost stories. Episode 14, Mary King's Close It wouldn't be a ghost story podcast without an episode dedicated to Mary King's Close, a famous haunted location in Edinburgh, Scotland. Now, a close is a narrow street, usually surrounded by high buildings, similar to what we in the U.S. would typically refer to as an alleyway. Some sources I have found define a close as the entrance to a tenement, but enough others define it the same way that I have that I suspect this is an error due to the fact that many old tenements would have been in or near alleyways. Mary King's Close in Scotland was one such thoroughfare, surrounded by tenement houses and once a significant shopping street. It is said to be named after Mary King, who owned a stall located there and sold such items as lace goods. But this story is probably apocryphal. Being a medieval street, sanitation was poor, and the contents of night soil buckets and bedpans would have been emptied into the street in the mornings. Being a narrow street, quarters would have been tight, and although the bubonic plague was the most virulent disease to spread through this region, it's a fair bet that diseases such as cholera and dysentery claimed more than a few lives. It is said that in the mid-17th century, when the bubonic plague was weighing lace to Edinburgh, Mary King's Close was sealed up in order to stop the plague-ridden and predominantly Catholic residents from getting out and infecting the rest of the city. The story goes that, after a year, the Close was reopened and over 600 bodies were pulled out, cut up by the local butchers, and then disposed of in a mass grave. In the 19th century, a new city chambers was constructed in this area, using lower levels of the original buildings as foundations. The result is that Mary King's Close literally went underground, buried beneath the new buildings, but still accessible. Like other connected closes, Mary King's was shut off from the public and not accessible for much of the 20th century. But it was reopened earlier this century. Now, guided tours are available and both ghost story enthusiasts and history buffs visit to see a place that is both creepy and a well-preserved example of a 17th century street. Mary King's Close has since gained a reputation for being one of the most haunted places in Scotland. People report seeing shadowy figures, smelling strange smells, and hearing noises with no apparent source. Other sightings include the apparitions of people walking through the close and, interestingly, also headless animals. One particular spirit said to haunt the close is that of a ten-year-old girl named Annie, who's often referred to as Wee Annie. She's said to inhabit a room within a house in the close, and those visiting the room report feeling her presence, hearing her voice, or in some cases seeing her. Visitors often leave toys and candies in the room as offerings to Annie. Rumor holds that the ceilings in some of the rooms are made from the ash remains of plague victims though this seems rather unlikely to be true, as, for all of its grim nastiness, it violates enough general human taboos to make it unpalatable to people in most cultures in any century. While most of the stories focus on apparitions seen since the close was reopened for visitors, there is a tradition that holds that the close was thought to be haunted long before it was sealed. 
One family is said to have had a larger amount of trouble than others with the spirits that inhabit the close, and that is the Coltharts, who lived in the close during the 17th century. Legend holds that the Coltharts, having decided that the tales of haunting were nonsense, moved into the close and set up their home. Mr. Colthart was a legal advisor, and the location provided some benefits for him. One night, while reading to her husband, who was sick, raise your hand if you suspect that that might have had something to do with raw sewage in the streets. Mrs. Colthart looked up to see the disembodied head of a scraggly-haired old man staring at her. Mrs. Colthart fainted in the manner of all good 17th century burgeoning middle-class stereotypes. Some days later, Mr. Colthart saw it as well, although there is no word as to whether or not he fainted. In fact, there is little information on his first encounter. He did, however, see it again. One night, Mr. Colthart was awakened by the spectral head, the same one his wife had seen. After waking up his wife, he lit a candle and began to pray. This did not do much good, because not only did the head not vanish, but a second one, this one the head of a child, appeared, as did a disembodied arm. After a time, the various body parts vanished, and their disappearance was accompanied by a loud groaning noise. Some years later, one of Mr. Colthart's clients is said to have awoken at night to see the sight of Mr. Colthart, shrouded in mist, hovering over the client's bed. The next morning, he headed to the Colthart's house, only to discover that Mr. Colthart had died during the night. Commentary Mary King's Close is a near-perfect haunted location. It is quite literally a buried but intact street with a creepy story to set up the hauntings. We have a buried street, ghosts from pestilence, and a city so afraid of plague that it sealed up some of its own inhabitants and let them die slowly and painfully. Thus, the street is haunted and the spirit of an innocent child is trapped in the dark amongst the more sinister spirits. While there are stories, such as that of the cult hearts, that suggest that the close had a reputation for hauntings even before it was closed up, those stories tend to take a back seat in most modern tellings to tales of more recent shadowy apparitions and, of course, we Annie. When you hear a ghost story so perfect, you have reason to suspect that there is something more going on than simply a scary story. To get at that, we have to get to the actual history of Mary King's Close. As previously described, the story in wide circulation holds that Mary King's Close was especially hard hit by the plague and that it was bricked off, trapping the inhabitants inside and letting them die horribly in order to stop the spread. The truth is that the close was never quite bricked up and there is no verifiable information that indicates that it was any harder hit by the plague than any other part of Edinburgh. It died slowly, as the economic and social realities of Edinburgh changed during the 18th and 19th centuries, but some limited access and use was still allowed as late as the early 20th century. The close went underground quite literally in the first half of the 19th century, when city government buildings were constructed over it, using the lower levels of some of the local buildings as foundations and demolishing others. A segment of the close was demolished to create Cockburn Street. Some of those buildings used as foundations continued to be used for various purposes, though the covering of much of the surviving street with the new buildings resulted both in making the place rather eerie and effectively removing it from view as a normal street. It is likely that the stories of the haunting of the close began, or at least became particularly popular, around this time. 
The inclusion of details regarding the breaking up of people and the poor treatment of their remains may be reflections of how people in the 19th century viewed the British class system and how people below the level of middle class were often treated by government policies. That most of those said to have been bricked in were Catholic likely also relates to the fact that sectarian religious animosities continued throughout the 19th and into the 20th century, though much less violently than in previous centuries. Since the end of the 20th century, the close has become a tourist attraction, with much of the focus of the advertising campaign on the ghost stories and alleged supernatural happenings. The attraction uses costumed actors as tour guides to describe the close and its history. Though much is made about the historical and archaeological research done in the area, the descriptions that I have read from folks who attended the tours suggest that this seems to come second to the money-making power of supernatural tourism, with much of the money going to support a local children's hospital. The concern about using historic locations to sell the supernatural, and the effect that that may have on public understanding, is described by the blogger The BS Historian. Quote, I think what we have here is an interesting survival of a piece of folklore. The original ghost story was an emotionally powerful way of retelling the old myth that the mysterious, mostly abandoned close was A. The result of the authorities' disdain for common people, and B. Haunted as a result. And the MKC, that is Mary King's Close, attraction perpetuates it, despite the fact that their tours were designed specifically to debunk the myth of the close, and even cites that research to enhance the truthiness of the story. As a money-making, though not-for-profit, company, it's easy to see why they would retain such a great piece of marketing. Sex may sell, but so do ghosts. Even my misinformed tour guide later made noises to the effect that the Annie story's veracity didn't really matter. It was just an exemplar of the sort of short, brutish, poverty and disease-ridden lives that the majority of people in Edinburgh, Scotland's history have suffered, and a way to raise money for ill young children at Edinburgh Hospital. Needless to say, it also maintains the attraction of the place to a wider range of visitor types and therefore helps keep the funds coming in. Periodic ghost sightings and other press and media work must help keep heads above water too, but do these ends justify the means? Does misrepresenting the facts of history and of science justify the money it brings in? Are we content to prostitute unique pieces of built and cultural heritage in order to help keep them going? I suspect the answer is yes, but we don't all have to like it, and we should try for better. Unquote. As someone who's involved in historic preservation professionally, I understand and to a large degree share the BS historian's views. However, my own take on this is tempered by other influences that have worked on me. One of the conclusions of anthropologist and perhaps fellow ghostthropologist Michelle Hanks' book, Haunted Heritage, is that the use of ghost stories and ghost tourism represent more than simple thrill-seeking or novelty. She argues that, through interacting with ghost stories and seeking out locations with a reputation for haunting, people are often, not always, but often, seeking an encounter with history. They are seeking a way to interact with or understand our past, rather than simply regarding it as something to be memorized from a textbook. In this way, what some ghost hunters are seeking to do is motivated by the same impulse as what motivates historians, though they lack the training, the tools, and in some cases, the discipline of the professionals. Failing to recognize that there may be a more sincere and less sensationalist element to the interest in seeking out haunted places opens up the possibility for those of us who are concerned about public understanding of history. 
This allows ghost stories to be a venue for more populist views of history, ones that are accessible and more immediate to people who visit historic sites. Dr. Hanks does have criticisms of this. For one, the fact that it can never be clearly demonstrated that ghosts are real, and therefore this is left as a matter of unverifiable belief, removes the stories regarding haunting spirits from the sort of review and revision necessary for true historical understanding. This also makes the ghost stories prone to being avenues for importing dubious ideas from the present into an understanding of the past, though ghost stories are not the only way that this can occur. Nonetheless, the appeal of ghost stories may speak as much to a desire to know the past as to beliefs about the paranormal in the present, and this must be considered by those who work in public history. And I have to admit that Dr. Hanks' perspective is one that I feel needs to be considered for professional reasons. The form of archaeology that I'm professionally involved in these days has less to do with direct research than with the preservation of archaeological and historic sites. And looking at the text of the federal and state laws under which I perform my work, I see routinely that these laws exist because of a presumed public interest in the human past. I'm not saying that my colleagues and I should aim for sensationalism over fact and trained professional interpretation, nor would those same laws allow us to do that. However, it is in our best interest to understand that very often ghost tourism offers a link to history that's not available through the other ways that we present our work. Even if we eschew the paranormal elements, it would still serve us well to consider what needs and desires the telling of spooky tales fills, and consider if we might be able to present genuine research and data in a way that fulfills those same needs. Even if we fail to replace ghost stories with actual research, and frankly I feel it's safe to say that we will never exercise the ghost stories from public discourse, we still learn to be better communicators, and we may better understand what the public needs from history. Very often in my work, I see that we recommend public interpretation as a mitigation measure for damage done to historic properties. Typically, this is done through static public displays, such as signs, providing information to museums in public-facing federal offices, such as Forest Service Visitors Centers. And, if we're feeling especially spicy, we may make short documentaries that can be made available through a few different venues. Now, I don't wish to denigrate any of these efforts, as I think that there is value in all of them. But they are not enough. We reach only a small audience, and even among those we do reach, many just tune us out. And, frankly, most of my academic colleagues only do the bare minimum in terms of public outreach, if they do any at all, because that is not where the emphasis of their professional responsibility is. And I think this is short-sighted, as the public pays for most research. Real history and real archaeology can be made more available and friendly to the general public. But we have to rethink what tools we are willing to use. Why not, for example, produce GIS apps for phones that allow people to see the landscape of the past overlaid onto the world as it is today, similar, for example, to the Night Sky app? Why not create augmented reality games like a historically informed Pokemon Go that allow people to have more interaction with the world based on historical facts? Why are we not making use of hobbies such as geocaching to better reach the public? Now, these are just my own ideas, but I know that there are many people who have better minds than mine who could produce better ideas. And if Michelle Hanks is right, then the popularity of ghost tourism, whether at Mary King's Close, in York, where Hanks did her own research, or at locations such as Alcatraz in San Francisco, or via ghost tours offered by so many cities throughout the world, shows us that there is a huge potential audience for better historic outreach and education. 
And if those of us who do this for a living don't provide it, then those who are willing to take up the slack will go straight to sensationalism and cheap thrills, as they have proven they are very happy to do. And, in truth, there's no reason why the two cannot exist side by side. After all, even the most serious of academics can enjoy a good spooky story. So, while I'm sympathetic to the BS historian's point of view, I think that there is some responsibility on those of us who are genuinely concerned with history to break out of our comfort zones and find ways to better engage the public. We often assume, quite wrongly, that the things that drew us to the study of the human past will automatically draw everyone else. While we should draw on our own passions and the reasons for those passions to help us reach the public, we also have to look at what actually draws the public in and see if there are lessons we can learn on how best to present a more accurate and less sensationalistic view of history. Ghost stories bring people in. The ghost stories are providing something that people seem to really need or want. It would serve us well to try to understand what that is and see if there are ways that we can more responsibly present actual research that may fill some of those same desires. And now, the ghost anthropologist will get off of his soapbox. Thank you for joining me. If you have heard a weird tale, have had a strange experience of your own, or know of a bit of local lore that should get a wider audience, please feel free to contact me at ghostthropology at gmail.com. That's G-H-O-S-T-H-R-O-P-O-L-O-G-Y at gmail.com. Also, please visit the Ghost Anthropology blog for transcripts, show notes, and more information at kmmamedia.com. That's kmmamedia.com. Until next time, have a wonderfully spooky night. Spooky! <laughs>